0: Today on Ag News Daily. There's been a variety of researchers who have analyzed agricultural representation in popular media. And these studies have found that the agricultural industry is generally represented with technology and imagery that is at least 30 years old.
1: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Friday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Ashton Carr. Ashton, I can't not tell you how excited I am that it is finally Friday. This week has felt so long and there's been so much crap going on. Oh my gosh. Tell me
2: about it. I had two finals yesterday. I have one that opens today. I have one Monday. So it's just been a crazy week for me trying to kind of juggle finals and work But I, I made a, I think it was a 76 on like my hardest final it has been my hardest class all semester. And I texted my dad and I was like, yeah, I got a 76 really excited. And he was like, um, is that supposed to be good? And so he kind of like killed my dreams there, but I got a 37 on our practice exam. So I was really happy about the 76. Yeah. Hey, C's get degrees Ashton. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I already have one, so he really should not be complaining about my grades right now. <laughs> you just got to make it through. Oh, I'm, I'm really trying be to be done. I think it's going to be my toughest class. That's at least what I heard. Um, so I don't know. Hopefully the hardest part is now over.
1: Ask me how many employers or folks have ever asked me what my GPA was in college or how many C's I got. I'm going to ask
2: or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say zero.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're right. Zero. Nobody really cares. I mean, you care in college, right? You have to get a good GPA. You can't get kicked out of grad school, especially because you do have to maintain a certain GPA for that. But you just place a lot of value on it when you're in college and then you get into the working world and you're like, oh, nobody cares that I got a C on my turf management class in college.
2: Yeah, I I really have tried super hard to maintain good grades and have a social life and have a job, and it's really hard to maintain, so I think I've done a good job or a good enough job at least up until this point, so we'll see how the next three
1: semesters go. There you go. That's right. You just, you're on, you got to keep coasting through, Ashton, but speaking of coasting through, here's some fun news for our Friday afternoon episode. Down in Brazil, there is some companies now allowing Brazilian farmers to pay for fiat, jeep, and ram models using a different type of currency, Ashton, not the Brazilian real to pay for these transactions. Instead, they're going to allow farmers to use grain to pay for cars. Essentially, what it sounds like is because There are uh, so many folks holding on to grain. Farmers a little strapped for cash at this point in time. They're going to allow farmers to essentially offer up a portion of their grain or soybeans, corn or soybeans, sorry about that, to basically hold down a loan, hold down a a purchase from uh, Fiat, Ram, and Jeep vehicles. So it sounds like a good deal to hop on that one. Well, Delaney,
2: I don't know if you know this fun fact about me, but I actually was a part of an organization that used to give tours of the Texas Tech campus. And we have a dairy barn. I I like the heart of our campus. It just now got renovated to where it's like a welcome center and stuff for the College of Ag. So that was pretty cool. But whenever we would go by the dairy barn, one of the things that we were kind of taught and trained to say is that back when Texas Tech first opened in 1923, that kids were allowed to bring chickens and cows to the dairy barn in exchange for tuition. So it sounds like you're kind
1: of incorporating some old
2: practices out there.
1: Yes, interesting. I didn't know any of those facts. So yeah, similar situation here using uh, grain commodities to pay for goods. See, I might get seventy sixes on my math tests, but I'm full of knowledge. <laughs> Maybe useless knowledge, but that's, I have That's why. There. <laughs> that's why you went to school for communications, Ashton, because we are not numbers people.
2: Oh, absolutely! Just the numbers—they confuse me. That's why I'm not too great at sharing market information. But I'm learning. But uh, I'm glad that you bring up Brazil, Delaney, because I have some news concerning Saudi Arabia as well as Brazil. Saudi Arabia has banned imports from 11 Brazilian poultry plants without any kind of warning or explanation, according to a joint statement from Brazil's Agriculture and Foreign Ministries that was released yesterday. JBS South America confirmed that it was affected by this ban, but declined to disclose how many plants had been targeted by this decision. The Saudi Food and Drug Authority said that imports from seven JBS plants will be suspended as of May 23rd. BRF South America, which is Brazil's biggest chicken processor, said that none of its plants were affected. So, I I mean, I'm not sure if it's in total 11 plants were affected, but only seven of those are from JBS. I'm not sure who all else is affected of those other four plants. I think it's pretty interesting especially because we're at least here in the US I don't know if this is a global issue but we're expected to do or to hit a you know chicken shortage so I'm I'm kind of questioning this I don't know really what's going on I don't know if it's covid related we haven't really heard of lately plants being affected because of covid-19 so hopefully next week after the weekend we can get some answers onto why Saudi Arabia really did this
1: Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like that could be an interesting geopolitical event to unfold here. But while we're on the topic of international trade and geopolitical events, we saw the USDA announce on Friday export sales heading to China. Some 1.36 million metric tons of U.S. new crop corn heading to China for delivery in the 2021-2022 marketing year. And this comes as we are continuing to see growing concerns that the dryness in Brazil is going to stunt that second safrina corn crop. And uh, folks are lining up here to to suggest that China might continue racking up massive purchases here throughout this marketing year. I know right now the latest estimates are like 28 million metric tons of corn, but that may not be enough, some folks are suggesting, especially if. We don't see much of the Brazilian corn crop come online here. So certainly some support there for markets on that news today. But while we're talking about exports, we saw U.S. beef and pork exports hit the highest monthly values ever recorded in March, according to the U.S. Meat Export Federation. A lot of that comes from like you're mentioning with the chicken or poultry industry, Ashton, COVID-19 supply chain issues. We're just seeing folks eat a lot more product. They're purchasing it. They're sacking it away for a later date. And we're seeing other countries do that as well. As China's continuing to purchase a lot of not only pork, but U.S. beef. Uh, U.S. beef accounted for about 3.4% of China's first quarter imports. For This year and US pork exports were a new value and volume record for March with a lot of those going to China. So it's definitely been supportive to see this demand driven market that we that we continue to be in and continue to see other countries worldwide buying US ag products.
2: Delaney, still speaking on you know what's going on in the poultry industry right now. Since you talked a little bit about that, I I'm not nervous or scared per se, but I'm. I guess a little bit anxious about it and what the future really holds. One of my friends down in Louisiana, she lives in the suburbs of New Orleans. She had a grocery pickup and they limited the amount of chicken that she actually Mm. bought. So I feel like we're having a little case of deja vu because around this time last year, we were being limited to the amount of products that we could buy in stores. So definitely interesting.
1: Yeah, that is interesting. Hmm. All right, we might have to dig a little deeper into that one because I didn't I know there were anyone uh, didn't know there was any folks limiting protein consumption or protein purchases. I should say.
2: I want to say it might be just an anticipation that something or that it's going to get pretty bad. But honestly, I mean, I haven't bought I mean chicken from the store recently, but I didn't know that it was this big of a deal. Yeah, so. I didn't. I didn't either. Well, one thing that's a a pretty big deal for farmers is Palmer amaranth, which, of course, is that invasive weed that's resistant to five herbicide modes of action. But out in Minnesota, officials are going to great lengths to limit the spread of Palmer amaranth, and it looks like they might be winning this battle. Minnesota Department of Agriculture Commissioner Tom Peterson says that Palmer was first confirmed in the state six years ago. And since then, they've been able to limit it to about 10 counties, and they've actually been able to eradicate it, which is even better, according to Peterson. He told Brownfield Ag News that there are two active cases being monitored in southeast Minnesota, but collaboration has helped the state get recognized in a recent article published by the Weed Science Society of America. Peterson was quoted as saying, really highlighting the work that we've done, and it's been a true partnership between the department, where we have an excellent weed team that I don't think can get enough recognition, but then University of Minnesota Extension, Farmers and Farm Groups. Peterson also credits Minnesota legislators for providing resources to combat Palmer amaranth and other invasive weeds. So some good news out there for those farmers out in Minnesota. Hopefully this planting season, they don't run into any issues with Palmer amaranth.
1: Yeah, that's been a nasty one that we've been dealing with for quite some time. Ash, and I've got just one other piece of news here, and it's kind of a new development. So I don't have the full angle on it quite yet. It might be something we explore further on in another upcoming episode. But there has been a new plan announced by the Biden administration that would raise taxes on inheritance tax. So folks transitioning farm operations from one generation to the next. Under President Biden's plan, It would raise capital gain taxes and limit stepped up basis. And it would essentially uh, increase tax proposals would double the capital gains rate from about 20% now to 40%. And so this has been a concern for a lot of farmers I know that are at that point where they want to transition farms to the next generation. And that next generation just quite frankly won't be able to afford it. So now we've seen a group of about 13, I believe, Democratic senators have, well, I should say House and senators, uh, have brought forward the idea that perhaps we should exclude farmers from President Biden's plan to raise capital gains taxes because, quite frankly, it's going to push a lot of family farms out of business. And 13 lawmakers wrote in a letter on Thursday that this this needs to basically be put aside for u.s farmers because this will hurt small family farmers some of which have had this farm in the family for generations and so they're strongly urging the administration to provide full exemptions for these family farms and small businesses that are critical to our communities so i'm hoping we do see the biden administration take this into consideration because yeah i don't know how they expect folks uh in rural america to be able to afford those really steep capital gains taxes especially when you're considering farmland right now is on a surge and you know i've seen acres around here sell for as much as ten thousand dollars an acre so there's just no way that young folks are gonna be able to afford this well delaney i am all out of news for today if you're ready to hop into the markets I certainly am, Ash, and I certainly am. We had some green on the screen today in the markets. I thought maybe we'd have a dull day this morning because we opened up uh, pretty neutral to steady, and we had some excitement to end the day here. July corn up 12 and a quarter to end at 731. The D's up 10 and a quarter to end at 635 and three quarters. In soybeans today, the July contract up 20 and a quarter cent to close at 1589 and three quarters. The November up 23 and three quarters that tickles at 1432 and 3 quarters. In the wheat pits today, Chicago contract, July month up 10 cents to close at 763 and a quarter. The D up 9 cents to close at 77 766 and a half. And in the protein markets today, we had a little mixed trade as the June live cattle contract up 55 cents tickles at 11602 and a half. The August up 37 and a half tickles at 11885. In feeder cattle, mostly strength is the August contract of eighty-seven and a half cents tickles at one forty-four twenty-seven and a half. The September up fifty cents tickles at one forty-six oh five. And in lean hogs, weakness today with the July excuse me with the June contract cutting back a dollar to end the day out at $112.85. $1, July shedding $1.10 to close at one thirteen fifty five, and wrapping things out here with our class three dairy milk futures lower today as the June contract shed six cents to end at $1, $18.95, July ending the day out at $1, $19.19 down a nickel. Ashton, without further ado, let's kick it over to our conversation for today's agrad 30 under 30 segment with Dr. Brooke Beam. For today's 30 Under 30
2: interview, we are talking to Brooke Bean, who has quite a long title. So I'm just going to introduce her as the Extension Educator for the Ohio State University Extension. I said the Ohio State, Brooke. Is that what you guys call it from my understanding?
0: (laughs) That is the the correct name, yes.
2: (laughs) Well, Brooke, thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. But before we get started talking about your background and all that great stuff, Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your title and what exactly you do?
0: Sure. So I am the Extension Educator for Agriculture, Natural Resources, and Community Development in Highland County, Ohio. So in that role, I conduct a lot of adult education courses for Highland County farmers and um, also our community members to get them more acquainted with the different industries in Highland County. And then when I'm not doing that, uh, I also farm with my family and we raise about 1,200 acres of grain crops in Clinton County, which is an adjacent county to Highland County here in Ohio.
1: And Brooke, we should add, your, act, your title is actually Dr. Brooke Beam, and you're part of this year's 30 Under 30 cohort, meaning you are under 30 and you are doctor already, but talk to us a little bit more about your background and how you got into extension work and into the doctorate route so early on in life.
0: So I attended The Ohio State University with a focus in agricultural communications, and um, I am the seventh generation of my family to be an Ohio farmer. And I knew that I wanted to stay in the agricultural industry and um, just really had an interest in how things were communicated and how things are represented. And um, what really got me interested in the direction that I chose and why I continued my studies to obtain my doctorate was I was able to work on a film set in southwestern Ohio. And as an internship, and also at one of the local news stations. And um, it wasn't the rosy picture of agriculture that I was used to seeing when I was working with those folks. Uh, they didn't have agricultural backgrounds. They really were unfamiliar with what a modern farm looked like. And um, so I was disappointed in how they were framing agriculture, and really wanted to see how media in general was framing agriculture to uh, the rest of the United States. As so few of the population here in the United States are directly involved in agriculture, I think it's very important to understand how mainstream and uh, popular media, um, particularly popular entertainment, how they influence our uh, opinions and perceptions of agriculture. And so what I studied in my master's and my doctorate uh, were the representation of the agricultural industry in entertainment media and in particular documentary films. So um, one of my professors said I, I made a short documentary film that I used in my dissertation and um, basically it was the process of growing corn on my family's farm over the course of a year. And, you know, she said that really was powerful and how we as agricultural communicators and farmers can communicate our messages is because we have access to the two farms, to other farms. We have a good network, a good community that we can work with. And I think that's something that's really important that's been helpful for my studies and then also for working as an extension educator, being able to communicate and connect with individuals who are like-minded in our industry. Um, so I graduated with my doctorate in 2017, and um, I started in the spring of 2018 at the Highland County Extension Office, and so I teach a variety of courses for farmers, whether that's pesticide and fertilizer recertification or beef quality assurance. Um, there's a variety of things that I teach there. Um, one of the highlights that we've had is the Germany International Film Festival, which um, That's something else that kind of came from my studies, and there aren't a lot of film festivals in the world that highlight agricultural content, and I thought that was important for us to have an outlet to do that so that we have a a venue to share these kinds of messages. Can Um, we talk a
1: little bit more about that, too? I'm interested to learn what you do or who you target this Aid International Film Festival for. Tell us a little bit more about that.
0: Sure. So we held the first film festival in August of 2019, and we were hoping to do that as an annual event, but COVID has that on hold at the moment. So it might be next year before we have the next film festival. But we had over 70 films that were from submitted around the world. We had films, virtual reality experiences, and photography. And um, so it's... um, Filmmakers have a variety of content. We had things that were highlighting rural communities in Nepal to filmmakers in Kansas or Ohio. Um, Everything from the pollinators to a local fifth grader who was highlighting his steer project at the county fair. Um, So I offered some filmmaking courses, and we had a lot of youth participants who came to those. And really, it's just getting people more comfortable with sharing their message. And um, also, I think it was an eye-opening experience for a lot of our producers who attended the film festival because they were able to see agriculture through other people's perspective and in other parts of the world. So there's a lot of, a very wide variety of content that's shared in film festivals, but They offer a lot of opportunity to get to learn things and to expose yourself to new concepts that you might not be able to see unless you traveled extensively.
2: Brooke, I'm really interested to know a little bit more about the role that agriculture plays in filmmaking or vice versa, the role that filmmaking has in the agriculture industry? Because when I think about sharing our stories as agriculturalists, I don't typically think of films. I think more of blogs or Instagram posts, photography, those kinds of outlets. So really what what role does films or do films have in sharing that story? How is it different from the avenues that we've already kind of taken?
0: Well, through there's been a variety of researchers who have analyzed agriculture's representation in popular media. And these studies have found that the agricultural industry is generally represented with technology and imagery that is at least 30 years old. So for everybody in the 30 under 30, it's things that were at the peak of technology when we were being born or very small. Um, And technology has come a long way in agriculture in the past 30 years um certainly didn't have the precision agriculture technologies and the drone options that we use today. So when a consumer sees that, they don't they're not seeing the way the agricultural industry is now. Um so it's important that as agricultural communicators and as farmers that we're promoting images that are representative of how the agricultural industry works now because things are different. Um we also find that agriculture in popular media is used for entertainment or comedy. They're not usually serious or um, portrayed in a, a positive light. Let's put it that way. Um, so there's there's a variety of things that agriculture is used for. It's my mostly a comedic crutch is what I would call it. Um, but there's also a lot of agricultural products. They're in product placement in films. Um, So John Deere has the most uh, pieces of equipment in films, but they do appear rather frequently in a variety of films. And once you start to look for those things, you'll start, you'll be watching a film and then you'll pick them out. Um, But really documentary films are one of the places that millennials in general they find is a trustworthy source to learn about the agricultural industry and their food sources. And if you look at a lot of documentary films, like um, food Inc. or utopia, things like that, they don't frame agriculture usually in the most positive light. And if you look at the background of those filmmakers, most of them don't have an agricultural background. Um, So I think it's very important that if there are people who are interested in making films that Um, particularly those who have an ag background. I think there is a niche for them to make films because um, there is a need for folks to make them who have some background and some knowledge about what's going on in the agricultural industry.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think that that's echoed too, when you look at folks who are quote unquote, social media or you know, YouTube influencers within the ag space, I think of like the millennial farmer or Cole, the corn star. There are definitely a lot of folks outside of the ag industry that watch those people, watch those videos and get information, glean them from people that are actually in the industry. So super fascinating that you've just based so much of your research and your career around around this. Uh, It's been really great to chat with you today, Brooke, and we certainly appreciate hearing your background and your story, and congrats on being one of this year's 30 Under 30.
0: Thanks so much for having me on today.
2: Thanks again there to Dr. Brooke Beam for coming on and talking to us. I think that the role that filmmaking has in sharing the story of agriculture is certainly one that I at least don't think about a whole lot, but definitely one that is very interesting and I hope that it becomes more popular.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if I could put together a documentary. I don't really have any ideas, but, uh, I think it'd be cool too. That's for sure. And I'm glad that she's pushing that forward. So agriculture gets to tell their own stories as opposed to having others do it for them. But speaking of stories, we tell many great stories and talk about many great news stories here on the Ag News Daily podcast. So folks, check out any of our past episodes you might've missed. Find it at agnewsdaily.com or on social media at Ag News Daily. Ashton, with us, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.